change, of course, since Beth Green is normally the host and James Maynard is the co-host. Uh, we've had guest hosts in the past, but going forward, we're going to be having a new format where Beth hosts the first show of the month with James. Helen will be hosting the show, I'll be hosting the show, and we'll have floaters, some of whom you already know. James has obviously been around the show for quite a while, and Christine's been a guest interviewer of Beth, and Chris Reese has also been on the show. So, so those are some of the people that will float in and out, and uh, we're all very excited about it, and we welcome your feedback. You can write to me, Todd, at theinnerrevolution.org to give us your input and your feedback about the show. And now, here's Helen. Hello there, everybody. I am nervous wreck, I have to say. My very first maiden voyage as the main host of the show. So please send me chi and good wishes, because it'll really make a difference for me. And I want to thank Todd, who at the last minute said, would you like me to come on and co-host? So I really appreciate you being here with me, Todd. It makes me feel uh, a lot more relaxed. Me too. So, I'm, I'm- I'm, I'm happy to be here with you. Okay, good. So I want to start off um, with a, a comment about our last show. We had a really great show last week where a group of men started to open up about their sexuality and some of the challenges they have had around pornography and other issues. Uh, the show was called Bill Cosby, Brock Turner, Roger Ailes, Anthony Weiner. How many men must fall before we start to help them? A Conversation Among Inner Revolutionary Men, and I hope you listen to it. But one of the participants in the discussion misspoke by saying that child pornography is a victimless crime. He did not mean that. He was referring to a man who is serving 15 years in prison for looking at children on the Internet, and he meant to question whether that was the appropriate way to treat somebody who is suffering from a sex addiction. You know, sometimes, as, as anyone who's been on the radio knows, when we're on live radio, we stumble. He apologized on Facebook, and his apology's been added to the on-demand segment here on Voice America. But for those of you who've not heard the apology, please know that he is well aware of the victimization of children and adults through the pornography industry, and he regrets his statement. Please feel free to listen to the show and pass it on. It's very important to support when to start dealing with these issues. And we look forward to the guys coming back soon to discuss the, the uh, topic further. In fact, I'm going to be coming on with them to talk about sexuality, pornography, and women as well. And we're also in the development stage of a show about young people and sexuality starting with an 18-year-old young woman and maybe a 28-year-old and some others in between, hopefully, who are going to be talking very openly and honestly about how they've been impacted by the societal focus on pornography and plastic surgery and all that sort of stuff. So stay tuned. We're really excited about making October Human Sexuality uh, Month here on Interrevolutionary Radio. So what are we doing today, Todd? Well, today's topic is don't think your kids are safe from the impact of domestic violence just because there's none in your home. Meet a school counselor and a teacher who will clue us in. Often people feel that the concept of oneness is just an abstract theory. Well, it's not. In fact, children from troubled families significantly decrease their peers' reading and math test scores 
and significantly increase misbehavior by others in the classroom. That means that you could be the perfect parent and yet your kids are being hurt by what's happening to their peers. And that's a lot of kids. Researchers estimate that between 10 and 20% of children in the U.S. are exposed to domestic violence annually. And that could be violence toward them or parental violence toward one another. We can't escape. Domestic violence knows no boundaries of race, class, or religion, and all kids are at risk. So let's welcome Brett Welch, a school counselor, and Vicki Fahed, a teacher, who are doing something about it. Tune in and find out how you can help your school and your kids as well. Okay. Thank you so much. And now on to the Interrevolutionary News segment. We at the Inner Revolution are always looking for articles posted anywhere that you can find them. And we'd love to have all of our listeners send us articles that, that they believe represent the inner revolution that's going on in our world. So first, the first article is posted by our founder and usual host of IR Radio, Beth Green. This CNN article was about a senior in high school named Hazel Juco at John Glenn High School in Westland, Michigan who noticed that the water from the tap in her high school restroom looked like urine. So she took a photo with her phone and posted it on social media, not thinking a thing about it. And the next morning she was called into the office and I guess an administrator at the school saw that photo and she was suspended by the assistant principal for breaking a rule that says that no one can use phone cameras in the bathroom. Well, there was an uproar from the other students and parents and, and many of the other students took photos in the bathrooms as well and posted them as kind of a revolt against the authorities. When the superintendent of the school system found out, she expunged the suspension, said that the rule for not taking pictures in the bathroom was really to prevent inappropriate bathroom photos, and she sent a plumber to fix a corroded pipe that was causing the problem. And we thought that was really a great story. Uh, it reminds me of a study I read recently that I can't remember where I saw it, but it was about the fact that we as a society need to learn to use the rebelliousness of teens to accomplish good things. And this is an example of just that, that the students became one with Hazel, so to speak, and defied the authorities for what they felt was an unjust action, and their defiance helped to resolve the situation. So sometimes we have to have a revolution to correct something that's wrong. So I thought that was a great story. And the second article is from Chris, an article from The Guardian, about several different proposals from the Social Democrat and Green parties in Sweden. These proposals are about tax cuts and other changes that are meant to encourage people to use things longer. So this is an example. They're recommending a 50% tax cut on the repairs of shoes, clothes, and bicycles. And another proposal would allow a tax credit on the repair of large appliances like fridges and ovens and dishwashers. And another one is for a chemical tax on, on buying new electronics because it's very difficult to recycle the components of old electronics. So what they're saying in Sweden is that there's a growing awareness that we have to make our things last longer 
if we are going to reduce materials consumption. And I sure wonder if this idea is going to catch on, and I hope it will spread. And it reminds me of an article that Beth probably reported on from The Guardian back in February that France has become the first country in the world to ban supermarkets from throwing away expired food but forcing them instead to give the food to food banks. And they say that they're serving about 10,000 people a day with that food. So that's definitely, you know, both of those things, the, the push in Sweden to try to help consumers uh, recognize a benefit from using their products longer and also from this uh, spread of the expired food. So that, that's all great news. We have another article from Beth um, from NPR, and the title of it is, It May Not Cost You More to Drive Home in a Climate-Friendly Car. Most people think that it does cost more, so Jessica Tranchik, an energy scientist at MIT, did a study to examine the cost, and it turns out it does not cost more. Mm. So, yeah, isn't that cool? That's way cool. Yeah, And the cars and trucks that we drive account for a fifth of the greenhouse gases produced in this country. So it's really important. And she pointed out also in the study that most of the hybrid and battery electric cars, like the Ford Focus Electric or the Chevy Volt, which is my car, or Nissan Leaf, Toyota Prius, Tesla Model 3, and BMW i3 already meet the 2030 climate goals. But the average car is 50% above that 2030 target. So this is really a challenge we need to face, you know, another interrevolutionary moment. And it's not just that we have to get over our lust for Chevy Suburbans and gas hogs like that, but even even regular vehicles, we're going to have to really tighten our belts and realize that it does not cost less, or uh, yeah, it doesn't cost less to, to uh, use a car that, that emits more carbon. So we can't blame cost anymore. So let's get on that bandwagon, guys. And our next, I love this next article, and that it was sent in by Christine uh, Benton, an upworthy article about another school, Robert W. Coleman Elementary in uh, Baltimore, I think it is, and how they handle kids who act up. What do you think is the consequence of unruly behavior? In their classroom, detention or suspension, right? No, not there. This Baltimore school, I just love this, made a mindful moment room instead. The room is pretty and decorated with soft colors and soft purple pillows on the floor. And when the student acts up, they're sent to the mindful moment room. They're asked to talk through what happened And then they're encouraged and taught breathing exercises and meditation to calm themselves and recenter. And I just loved, loved, loved that that program. They have an after-school program called Holistic Me, led by Kirk Phillips. And he's taught the kids mindfulness exercises and yoga in partnership with Holistic Life Foundation, which is a local nonprofit. And since they've been using this mindful room, Mindful Moment Room, they have had no suspensions at their elementary school, and a nearby high school has been using those same techniques, and they have seen a reduction in suspension and an increase in attendance. Now, we don't know for sure if those are a direct correlation, but it certainly could be. 
And we love this idea in the inner revolution because we're starting to see a definite step in the right direction in our culture, which is stop the punishments that don't work and offer people mutual support. You know, this is going right back to the show on pornography last week and and our belief that, you know, we've got to stop penalizing people and start treating them, offering them, understanding them, help. So let's see. There's also other IR news about Wells Fargo being held accountable for the unauthorized accounts that they started and how the employees are suing them for basically being forced to do it. Bravo. Another corporate giant has has to come clean. And then the last one, and there are so many great news articles this week, but the last one's in The Guardian also. Uh, I think Beth sent this in, too, about Ziana Oliphant, the nine-year-old African-American girl from Charlotte, North Carolina, that has, has basically stolen everyone's hearts with her emotional and eloquent talk about how awful she feels about the racial injustice in this country and in her town. And we just want to put in a plug, you know, and say good for you and that we have to face this and work together to support the oneness so this can end. Okay, that's it for IR News. And now we want to welcome our guests, whom I hope we have online. We do. Okay, awesome. Okay, so I want to welcome Brett and Vicki. Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio. Hi, thank you. Hi. So why don't we start with you, Brett, and tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do, and then we'll go to you, Vicki. Sure. Uh, I'm a school counselor, elementary school uh, in Virginia, and I work with elementary students on academic planning, uh, emotional social support, and career planning, even as early as elementary. Wow. Uh, I was a teacher for a couple years at the middle school level. Uh, and then fell in love with elementary when that was my first job as a counselor. Um, so, yeah, that's me. Okay. And Vicki? Um, I am a kindergarten teacher um, at elementary school in Virginia. Um, I've been teaching about 20 years. Um, I've been a K through 4 teacher, and my heart is now with kindergarten because that's where the foundation starts. So I really love that grade level now. Absolutely. Uh, I love your accent, Vicki. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I, can, I can't hear it in Brett's voice, but I can hear it in that Southern warmth. I really like that. So I want to just welcome you both. And I'd like you to tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this fascinating process of identifying that, that if one child in the classroom is experiencing violence at home, that it lowers the uh, grades and scores of all the kids in the class. It makes kids act out more in the class. Uh, That just totally, it totally reinforced an idea that we've been working with in the inner revolution for a long time, which is that we are one and that we, you cannot get away from the impact of one person on everybody else whether it's in the classroom or anywhere. So we were just thrilled to find your research and experience. And uh, I'd love to hear about how you got involved in that. Uh, Sure. This is Brett. Uh, I was the president of the Virginia School Counselor Association last year. And 
NPR had contacted us as an organization because they'd found the research that was described in the article uh, about just what you said, about how one child's experience can affect all the other children in the classroom. And so they were calling because what the researcher had found was that one of the biggest differences in what made it better was after the incidents or the domestic violence itself was reported. And they were sort of trying to find correlations between why that might be the case. And one of the reasons they came up with was because authorities got involved, and in particular the school and teachers and counselors. Um, you know, as school counselors, we're often the only counselor that a child will ever see, uh, possibly in their entire lives. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So once that counselor and the teachers got involved and the child was able to begin to talk about it and uh, integrate it, that things got better. So they contacted me and NPR came and did a story at my school and I suggested Vicki uh, going into her classroom and talking to her. Yeah, it's really, working with Brett is amazing. Um, she has helped me realize that what these children, and it's also based on my years, but what these children come from and how they do impact the classroom. And it's my goal and my responsibility to to help diffuse and help feel them safe in the classroom. It's it's just a very important place for them. It's a safe place. It's such a powerful intervention that you can make. You know, I'm I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist as my job and intuitive counselor that Beth trained. Um, but I don't have the opportunity to see kids and families in their homes, in their day-to-day functioning the way you do. And you get so much more opportunity to intervene with them, even though, God bless you, I don't know how you do that, along with all of the, I don't know if you guys have Common Core in Virginia or whatever, but... We're not. We're one of the only states that's not a Common Core, but we have plenty of our own... curriculum and all that absolutely absolutely so i i really don't know how you do it and brett i don't know how you do all you do given that you have to split your time you know and you're only at you're at vicky's school two times a week is that right it is and i the article i don't know if it made it completely clear i'm not the only counselor there there's another full-time counselor and because our numbers are so high i'm there two days a week and then I actually support the other elementary counselors in the county the other days. So we're very fortunate in our county. They're extremely supportive. But there are plenty of schools uh, in Virginia and certainly around the country uh, where that is a reality. It's the only counselor, especially in those rural districts, uh, the only counselor splitting between three schools. And every school has, you know, 500 kids. And that's just crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, it's totally crazy. In reading the NPR article, I was so struck by the process, and I'd like you to take us through kind of both of you from your perspectives, the the day-to-day process that you go through. And what I was referring to in reading the article was that you said the first 10 minutes of the day Mm -hmm. really impact what's going to happen. Would you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I, yeah, I can start. Uh, the first 10 minutes do. Now, I, every counselor and every administrator, everybody does a duty, you know, like a morning duty, that kind of thing. So right. I always ask for bus duty. I like bus duty uh, because that's how most of our kids come into school. And you get to see who's coming off the bus angry or upset or in tears. And that can make all the difference if you can turn that around for that child within those first 10 minutes as they go to breakfast, as they go to class. 
um, you know, if they're getting off the bus really hyper because they've had sugar for breakfast, which is true and <laughs> for a lot of kids. Um, yeah, that's a whole other radio show that maybe you guys maybe you guys would like to come back and talk about that because oh that's a, so <laughs> I'd like to ask a question about how do you turn that around? Like, let's say a kid comes off the bus and they're upset. You can tell they're upset. What what kind of things that you say, do you say? What do you, what's the process? What do you actually do with them? It's simpler than it seems that it would be, but really you just get down on their level and you listen and mm-hmm. you ask. You know, I counselors are curious people, yeah. and, and I think that's what helps. And, you know, when we talk about trauma-informed care, which I'm a big proponent of, um, being curious is what we talk about. And having a child know that you're interested in why they're upset and you're interested in why they're crying. Um, Because a lot of times in their communities, it's, you know, suck it up and move on and you got to get going. And and that's a survival technique in a lot of those communities. And I appreciate that, why that is uh, the norm and what they try to teach their kids to do. Um, However, in school, you know, they can't learn if they're in that space. They're in that reptilian brain, they're fight, flight, or freeze. And you can't combine language with emotions in that state. So if they're in that state, they're not available to learn. Um, and then we can't do what we're there to do. So, yeah, talking, asking, getting them to calm down, getting them to identify emotions in their bodies, get into their bodies. Where is that emotion in your body? Um, I heard you talking, Helen, about mindfulness and how that's um, becoming. I'm so thrilled to hear mm-hmm. that more research is coming out about how effective that is. It's incredibly effective yes, getting yes. kids to ground themselves um, and practice those mindfulness techniques. And Vicki's seen me do it in classes with brain gym and that yes. kind of thing. Um, and it's really, really effective when kids know what to do to calm themselves down. And with me coming in at the second, during those first two minutes, 10 minutes, I'm standing at my door. I can see how they're coming down. I Giving them just a hug and knowing that I love them, I care, is building that relationship with them. But that hug can just re- give them so much relief. It could be I, I, mom doing this, mom, you know, had an argument with mom or something happened at home. But just that one hug, knowing that I love you, I care about you, that will do it. You know, I, I have the biggest smile on my face right now because that was going to be my next question is, are you allowed to hug? Because I know I know exactly what you're saying, Vicki, that that hug means so much, that physical safety, that affection, that, you know, the chi flowing between your bodies, you know, however you want to say it, is so healing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That energy exchange. Yes. I mean, I know there's a lot of stuff going around be careful and don't touch kids and good luck in an elementary school trying to get kids not to touch <laughs> like they throw themselves at you and I, I love it that's why I love my babies and I mean yes. I like middle school because those people are crazy and I just love them but um, elementary is a whole other ball game and I, I love my, my babies yeah. and that hugging I mean I have to hug my students I'm very I love to touch them they touch me they do the lean on and they have to touch me even when we're in, doing like morning time they, they will touch my clothes or touch my hand, but they're very tactile students, and that that's just building that relationship with them, knowing that they are safe, and this is a good place, and it's amazing. We do a meet and greet every morning. I turn the music on, and we're saying high five and doing fist bump and hugging, and their expressions on their faces are just unbelievable. They're like excited. They're saying hello to their friends. They come in to hug me. We do group hugs. 
So it's, you know, it's a big impact to touch, to, just to touch them, pat them on the back, you know, give them a hug, tell them you love them. It just right. makes a difference. I, I am all with you and I completely concur. And, you know, speaking of the older kids, it's sad to me that they don't just run up to you and grab you too, the way the younger kids do. It's sad to me that that is somehow socialized out of us because they certainly need it just as much as those little babies need it. Very true. They sure do. But, you know, that's not cool for teenagers. Not cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I hope it becomes I hope it becomes cool at some point. True. Yeah, true. Um, one of the things that I read in the article also was that one thing that really helps to make a difference is if the parents report the violence. Mm. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think, you know, that's from that, that's when things start to get better because the parents are reporting it, it's being recognized. Um, and if they're reporting it, then services are coming into place. So I think that's where that part of the article kind of right into effect. Um, is that common sometimes? What we see a lot is that they'll report it and they'll have a restraining order or a protective order and then they rescind that protective order because now the aggressor is back in their lives and, oh, but it's okay. And um, I had that this week, actually. So that's okay. a constant battle for that child in the middle of that, especially if it's both parents. Uh, and then that's a whole other trauma to be stuck in the middle of that. And then you're trying to help that child cope with that when really the child has no control. So it's how do you help a child not see themselves as a victim, but see themselves as a survivor of that and what are their resources? We talk about, you know, safe places to be in the house and we talk about what they do to be happy, even if there's fighting going on or things going on and how to stay safe. Yes, I like that. And, you know, even we've been talking about this a lot in the inner revolution about even going beyond the idea of survivors, whether you're a survivor of molest or violence or cancer or whatever, but to encourage the, the child or the adult to think about themselves, that that is not even their identity at all. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not even that they're just a survivor, but that they are something, something altogether different than that scene, which I think is exactly what you're trying to do. To How do they find their happy place even in the midst of all of that? Right. And who are they, as you said, who are they, you know, besides that? Yes. Uh, and maybe talking about that just as, you know, as with an eating disorder, you know, if you name it, if it becomes an external thing, they find that people heal faster because it, they're not taking it on as a part of themselves. So same yes. here, you know, that you're not taking it on as a part of yourself. It's something that happened. It's not something that is you. Um, and that's a big difference to have that shift in mentality. Yeah, I love that. It's, that it isn't you. It's just something that happens outside that impacts you. Mm-hmm. And I think one um, of the things that we do is you know, it's important to hold all kids to the same high expectations. And we've talked about this a lot at our school. It's a Title I school and a needy school. You know, it, if you take circumstances into account, which you always need to, but if you alter how high the bar is set. And if you alter expectations, oh, well, that child, you know, they may not be able to do that because they have XYZ going on. You're not serving that child. You're not. Because that child then, if the expectations are lower, they don't expect themselves to rise to the occasion. Mm -hmm. Well, they they must feel identified as defective in some way. Absolutely. So your job is to figure out how to help them be their best, you know, 
and not with all what's going on in their lives, but just who they are. What do they want? What are their dreams? Who do they want to be? Um, and that's part of our job. Yes. You, you both, you know, you mentioned trauma-informed care a little bit earlier, and I, I was interested to ask you, and I'd like you to address this, uh, Vicki, um, do you notice that other traumas have the same impact as violence? Because I know in trauma-informed care, it's not just violence, but it's incarceration, drugs and alcohol, divorce, uh, chronic illness, things like that. Do you notice the same thing? in regards to those other traumas that you do to violence? Um, I think they're, to some degree, yes. I do believe that depends on how the, the students um, internalize it. A lot of my students are raised by either a, mo- a mom that, and with a dad is incarcerated or grandparents um, or, you know, both parents are incarcerated and they're being raised by an aunt. So it just, it just really depends. It's just sometimes it dep- a lot of it revolves if a parent is, gets, comes back into the picture, then the behaviors start happening. But when they're away, they decrease. Um, it really just depends, but there is definitely, you have to understand the child and understand their history to really um, grasp what they're going through. Because knowing the children is what it helps. Oh, yeah, that's got to be so important. And sometimes maybe hard to do, because this reminded me when you were talking about um, that when the report is made that, that there's violence going on or whatever is the problem, that's when the resources are sent to try, try to help the situation and the people. Um, but it must be hard sometimes because of the shame of incarceration or drug addiction or violence in the home. Uh, it must be hard to get people sometimes to say there is a problem and ask for help. Exactly. And I will... Um I do believe that sometimes this is part of their life. They don't know anything else. You know, mom and dad or whoever relatives are in prison and they just, this is part of their life. Because I, I will have some students say, hey, you know, my mom is here, my dad's here. or But it is, it is hard um, for these little ones because this, it's, it does become part of their life. This is the normal for them. And that's what's so hard being a teacher and being a counselor is we have to be always be watching out for these students because they're just so little. They just don't know what normal is. Right, right. And they don't know the difference between who they are and the circumstances around them. Exactly. So I'd like you to talk, uh, Brett, a little bit about how the violence in one child affects everyone in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you mentioned earlier kind of the, the chi or the energy, you know, mm-hmm. between kids. And yes. I think part of how it affects, you know, if a child's coming in and they've had, they've either witnessed or they've been a part of it because they're in the middle of these experiences, they're bringing that energy with them into school. Mm-hmm. Um, and that energy can if they externalize it, it can come out as bullying. It can come out as aggression, and you know, just kind of very low lying, being mean to others, or they can internalize it. And they can be sullen and 
uh, refuse to participate. And all of that sets an example for the other kids. Are they absolutely going to emulate it? No, not necessarily. Um, but we do see some copycat sort of stuff, um, particularly because a lot of the kids in these situations tend to be kind of the more outgoing kids, therefore the more popular kids. So you do see some of those behaviors being imitated by other students. Um, they're, so the mo- they're the more popular outgoing kids? That totally surprises me. Can doesn't you just- it? But sometimes, yeah, because they, they've they de- developed this shell, kind of this harder shell. Um, they're the tough ones. They're the, you know, big tough guys. And yeah, um, yeah. So it is surprising because you'd think they'd be the wallflowers, you know, not talking to anybody. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case most of the time. That think uh, Helen, just think about the school that we worked with here in San Diego. Yeah, I and was the kids that were yeah. Yeah, so I was I, after I said that I was thinking, oh, I remember that same thing. <laughs> right. Yeah, tough yeah, kids. We produce tough kids, so they're tough. We did a we did a program. Uh, our, we have a program called Unleashing the Power of Kids through mobilizing them through fitness, cooperation, service, and thought. And, you know, we teach, we do programs like dealing with differences, for instance, we'll go into an elementary school or another place and uh, have the kids break up into small groups and talk about how they experience themselves as different. And uh, then after they talk for a while, then we go out and play cooperative games because we don't believe in competition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we have them come back in and talk about did they experience themselves as different from one another while they were out playing the cooperative games and the conversation just gets a lot deeper. And this is where critical thinking, the thought part comes in. And so anyway, we did this with an elementary school in San Diego that was having a very hard time with a, with quite a few bullies in the classroom and, and two thirds of the kids were boys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And it, it's also in a, uh, I don't know if it's a Title I school, but they definitely have financial and other kinds of needs there. So we have had some experience with exactly what you're saying, and that's one of the reasons we resonated so much with the work that you're doing. Absolutely. That work sounds amazing. That does yeah. sound really neat. Love to have it that. Is. You know yeah. what? I'd love to talk to you guys about the program because you could do it at your school. We sure uh, could. I'd love yeah. it. Absolutely. Maybe I'll maybe I'll fly out to Virginia. You know, <laughs> oh, come on, that, that that would be so much fun. Love anyway, um, back to Brett. What about the trauma informed? I'd like you to to talk about what Vicky was sharing a little bit earlier. Do you feel the same way that, to a lesser degree, some of the other places or some of the other issues um, impact the kids, or how do you see that? I do. I mean, I I hear what she's saying. I agree with it. Um, I do think trauma is trauma. Um, But what she was saying, it's all about the individual child. It's all about how that child perceives the trauma. And if it's traumatizing to that child. I mean, you can have a child in, you know, witnessing domestic violence at at a lower grade level. um, Or two children in the household and one can perceive it very differently than another. And it can be traumatic to one and not traumatic to another. So it's all about the perception of it. So when I work with kids, one of the first things I do is get them to describe, you know, the situation. And we usually do it through drawing um, because that gets into that metaphor mind instead of using Mm -hmm. language and then we can connect that. Um, Mm -hmm. But I was thinking on my way home and sort of preparing for this, I 
have a kid who I was working with and mom was incarcerated. Um, so we were working on that a little bit. But one of the questions I always ask my kids in the beginning when I start working with them is what's the best thing that's ever happened to you in your life? And what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your life? And uh, he had a rough life before mom was incarcerated. Lots of drugs around domestic violence. I mean, all kinds of things. And he said the best thing was something about getting a video game that he wanted some PS4 something. Fine. Yeah. Of course. Um, but when I asked him the worst thing, he looked at me and he goes, huh, I don't really know. I don't think I really have one. <laughs> wow. Kids say that and, you know, if their heads are down, I don't know. I don't, you know, And that's covering. But that was not the energy from this child. This child just said, oh, I don't really know. Can't think of one. So you just never know what the perception is of a child. And then I've had other kids, you know, who the other parent was incarcerated or something else happened. And that wasn't even the primary parent they live with. And they were wrecked, just like completely behaviors off the wall, wrecked. So you really just have to work with the kid that you have and meet them where they are. Um, So can it affect, you know, can all kinds of issues affect kids in the same way as domestic violence? Absolutely. Do they have to? No, it depends on the kid. And I'm sure it depends on the intervention of people like you and Vicki. Absolutely. Yeah. And Brett, is, Brett is my, when she started at my school, I was so excited because she connected with the children immediately. And she, you could tell that she understood them. So it was, it was, it's a great relationship that we have because if I need her, she's there mm-hmm. no matter what. And it is hard with her being there only two days. Yeah, yeah I imagine. You know, the other thought that, that that brings to mind is how much of our human pain is caused by disconnection. Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, you two have each other, and what a blessing that is. And, and so much of what you're providing the kids, too, is that feeling that they're not alone that, that even if these horrible things are happening in their homes and they perceive them as horrible, they still are not alone because they have the two of you and, and other caring people probably at school um, to let them know that. And even though it doesn't take away the pain, it makes it so much more tolerable to know that they're loved and safe and, again, not alone. Very Absolutely. True. And the research shows that like, it just takes one, you know, it takes one caring adult to make the difference. So, mm-hmm. and when you're surrounded by them at school, it's huge. Um, and, you know, yeah, it's a wonderful relationship and I'm lucky to work with a lot of wonderful teachers and it's all about that culture that teacher creates in their classroom. If they're creating a safe environment, then school is the safe place and the child always has that to go to. And it's so huge. And you know, when you walk into a classroom, you can feel the culture in that classroom immediately. It's just an energy. You can absolutely feel it. You know, I completely agree with that. And I'm sure you, excuse me, I'm sure you do too, Vicki. Yes, most definitely. Because that's one, even though our classes, my class is big, I try to make sure I, I hear everybody's voice. And, um, you know, and we talk, we have meetings every day and we talk. I always ask them, how are you doing? What's new? What do you have to tell me about? Because they, you know, I, I want to know what's going on. It's very hard. I mean, I want to just meet everybody. And I take, I take what these students are feeling. I take it home with oh, me. Yeah. Yeah. You and know, that, that was going to be my next question, Vicki. You're reading my mind. <laughs> um, 
because how do you manage to to I don't even know what to call it to to have a life of your own where you're not constantly obsessing about the pain of these kids. Mm-hmm. It is very hard. There are some students that just will worry me. I mean, I will wake up in the middle of the night oh, yeah. thinking about them. Absolutely. And it's just like, I mean, I'll talk to, if Brett's there, I'll talk to her or I'll talk to another colleague and say, this child's really bothering my, you know, what's going on is bothering me. How do I fix it? Because I want to fix their problems. I want to fix the pain. And it does. It's, it's, it's hard. Cause they, we, because we can't fix it. You know? Exactly. Exactly. But we're there. And, and that's what you have to, that's how you go to sleep at night. You just say, but I'm there. And at least I can be a positive light. Um, you know, tough love sometimes too. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Tough love. You know, I, I want to switch gears because I and I, but I don't think it's a big switch because I know I told you both that because it's inner revolutionary radio. You know, we want to talk about how this has been an inner revolution for the two of you, and how this work has impacted your own lives and your own perspective about your impact on your kids or your husband or or your colleagues or whatever. So, whoever would like to go first, I'd like to have you begin to address how it's changed you and your understanding of the world? Um, I'll have to say that it's definitely, I'm more aware of everything now. Um, I feel a lot. Um, I'm the, I'm one of five. And so I'm the one that feels the most on the baby. And, um, but I do, I mean, the way, what goes on with my siblings, what goes on with my friends, I, I see it differently. Because um, I can, when I talk to my friends about what's going on in the world, what's going on in their lives, I approach it so much differently now than I did before. Because I know, and I listen to them. I don't give my, I try not to give my opinion, um, but I do a lot more listening, but it definitely has impacted my life on what I, because even over the past 18, 20 years, it has changed so much. I've had to adjust. I've had to change because the world is so different. And it's all, in my perspective of things now are just so much, I guess, more, more clear, more clear now. But it definitely, um, my relationships with my sisters and my friends are, are definitely, I don't know how to put it, like, well, are you saying are you saying Vicky that you're more sensitive about what you say and do because you know that it can have such a powerful impact on others is that what you're saying uh, yes I would have to yes I am and I you know there's so many I don't know how to put it but yeah I would say I'm more aware I'm more sensitive in what I say and how I act I'm not as impulsive anymore. So it's more. And bad. not not so opinionated. Exactly. exactly. Oh, no, she's still opinionated. <laughs> I, got, I got you, sister. I got you. Uh-huh. I am that. I am innocent. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, it's definitely, I've definitely, when I reflect on my, on the past, my education life, on my growing up and. It, I've definitely changed, and what I see in the classroom at school, 
has impacted me because I'm, I, like I said, I want to fix everything. I want to be there to make things better. Take the kids home with us. Take them home with me. <laughs> I always yeah. want to adopt them. I know. Yeah. But I, I really, I appreciate your openness about that because I think it, it's a, been a big problem in my life too is thinking that I know things that I don't really know, you know, and thinking I know better than my sisters and I'm one of six. So I, I can relate to that kind of energy. Um, and coming to this awareness, the more and more I learn about experiences like yours that really prove that we have a huge impact on each other. The more I have to stop myself and my own opinions from dominating things. And, and like you were saying, Vicki, listen. And it's a hard uh, thing to learn to do. It's a very hard thing to learn to do. And, you know, I uh, was touched by what you said earlier, Brett, about, you know, the job of a counselor is to investigate and inquire. Mm-hmm. And we, we don't do that much of that with our families and our spouses. You know, if my husband comes home in a bad mood, I want him to just snap out of it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We, don't, oh, we, don't, we lose all our curiosity. We sure do. Right, right. So, Brett, do you want to talk about how it's changed you? Sure. Gosh. Um, I think this school where I am now especially has changed me. Um, I haven't worked in as needy of a place before. It certainly made me incredibly appreciative of all the blessings. And I don't mean that to sound trite. I mean, I truly mean it deep down. I just go home and think, I, I, I'm so blessed, you know, yeah, yeah. to think about my kids going home and what they're going home to and what I'm going home to. I just shake my head at how lucky I am. Me too. Yeah. yeah. It's made me a better mom, you know, I think. I um, tried to be more patient and the work that I've done with trauma-informed stuff has been very helpful, too. You know, they're big T traumas and they're little T traumas. And exactly. both are just important, especially to little people. Um, right. If it's important to them, it needs to be important to you. Uh, without over-dramatizing it. You know, I, my daughter's four on Sunday. And so we do talk about, um, I think that's a little dramatic. And then she'll say, I, I'm not being dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we put things in perspective and we can giggle about it Okay, but um, what about with your husband? Oh, plus my husband, he deals with me all the time. Uh, (laughs) I'm lucky because my husband's a teacher, a high school teacher. So we really kind of are cut from the same cloth in that way. And we have stories to share. And um, he's such a friend, you know, and a colleague. And we're just able to talk to each other on a different level because he really gets it. Um, So that's such, I'm so lucky um, to have have you. Have you found that you have become more sensitive of his feelings or if he's in a bad mood that you are able to investigate more and not just be irritated? Oh, I so wish I could say yes. No, no. (laughs) Good for you. Um, And this is why I work with children because I can't deal with adults. I just say, like, you need to get it together if you're an adult. And this, I just love to work with them. And no, if you're an adult, if you're a grown up, be grown up. So, and that's hard at our school too, because a lot of our parents are kids, either mentally or truly still kids. So that's been a challenge. Yes. Um, I have three students that have children there now. 
from previous, from years ago. You right. taught their parents. I taught their parents. Yeah. Right. Uh, full circle. Yes. Right. So, so no, I wish I could say that I was a better wife. I hope so. Sometimes I, I have learned to take a step back and put things in perspective and what's important. I will say. Well, maybe, maybe that can be your homework today, Brett. That sounds good. <laughs> I will, I will certainly, my husband will love you for that. I will tell you. <laughs> you know, I've always, I've always been kind of a hard ass like that too. And, <laughs> Wanted them, you know, just just shape up, like I said, you know, my husband comes home in a bad mood. But, you know, if we're going, if we really are going to believe in oneness and trauma-informed care, it has to apply to grown-ups, too. You're so right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It really, it really does. And I struggle with it, too. But uh, we've got to take it on because, you know, this affects the whole world it, because it's the same thing if we walk into a room of uh, you know, you were the president of the Counselors Association. If you walk into that room and one of those counselors is having a really hard time, everybody in that room is going to pick that up energetically. Somehow it impacts us all. And the same for the UN, for that matter. Absolutely. Yes. And that collective yes. unconscious, you know, that collective unconscious is a real thing. Yes, and it is. We're all feeling what others are feeling and putting that energy out into the world. And um, Yeah. Very it's true. so true. I, I was at a concert the other night and there was this guy that just, you know, Christine and I identified, my wife and I went to the concert and he was standing right next to me and I just, I was, I had to get away from him. You know, like I tried to just send him chi and send him energy, positive energy, but he was feeling so much self-hatred. I mean, I didn't even talk to him, but I could just feel it. That it's amazing. Fire kind yeah. of feeling. Just a dark, you know, kind of like, uh, it's just so... It wasn't bad. It wasn't like he was a bad person or something. I, I could just feel that, though. And we are so connected that the more sensitive you become, more aware of that of those people around us. And, you know, how do you support people in those situations? Absolutely. And I think yeah. you just send your positivity as much as you can. And I feel like that's what we do for kids. And mm-hmm. honestly, that's what kids do for each other. Kids are amazing with being able to be positive for each other. And the positivity can turn a room as much as the negativity can. And Very I've seen true. kids do that for each other, too. Very you know, I, I love what you're saying because I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, about how kids can make a difference too, because that's one of the things. We recently did a uh, Girl Scout event at a mosque, and we were talking, it was partly to help the community of Girl Scouts that weren't Muslims to come into the mosque and, and normalize that experience and, you know, realize that Muslims are just like everybody else. And mm-hmm. so um, the first thing we had everybody do was walk up to another child or adult that you never saw before and tell them you are safe with me. Mm. Oh, I like that. Love that. I love that too. And I'd love it if you would take that on and do that at your school. But um, I wonder what experiences you have to share also. And that, that just set the tone for the day when we did that. And we ended with that also. And you could feel it when you said to someone, you are safe with me. You, it was a sacred commitment you were making. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm. Um, so can you share a little bit about what you've ex- seen and experienced and, and how you try to encourage that? I think I'm thinking about two different places in schools. One, I'm thinking about at recess um, when a child sees another child who doesn't have anybody to play with. Uh, And there's a beautiful movement. I don't know if you've heard of it called the buddy bench. Yes. Yes. So just that idea of the buddy bench and kids can sit on the buddy bench if you don't have someone to play with and um, somebody will come up and ask you to play. 
And kids are so good about that if you attune their awareness to it. I think a lot of times why kids are to the side and nobody's watching is they're just involved in their own little lives and their own little selves. Um, right. You turn that child's awareness to remember to look around for others who may not have anyone to play with. They're incredibly good at it. Incredibly good. And the other time is if a child is sad, a classmate is sad or unhappy, and kindergartners are the best at this. You know, they're like, you know, a herd. They'll all go over to that child <laughs> to cheer up and play. And or, do you need a tissue? Do you, can I help you up? Can I do this? And you know, they're the sweetest. Yeah, and I teach um, the collaborative classes, which have um, special needs students in it. And it's interesting because, and I've taught it for several years in all different grades, they they help the other students. They become helpers, and they love to help the other child. You know, if I say go and help, you know, Johnny with this, they're like, oh, me, 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 and they get excited so that compassion is um, there for them. They definitely connect with, like like Brett said, the children that are sad or that need help. I have two students now that are trying to help me with one of my students. And sometimes I have to say, Miss Fayhead's got it. We're good. <laughs> so, but it, I love it because they're help. They're trying to help me. Yes, and it makes, you know, that's that reminds me of the service aspect of our kids' program because kids love to be of service. Yes. And, and, you know, if we can start with that focus early on, it helps them build confidence and feel good about themselves that they're making a contribution to the world. Right. Sure does. Mm-hmm. Helen, we need to talk about what's coming up next week. We're, we're Great. <laughs> Go right ahead. I hate to cut it off, but it's been such a great conversation. But uh, we'll come back for just a moment at the end here. So next week coming up, is Trump just a symbol of our desperate need to feel wanted? Donald Trump needs to feel wanted. He changes his tune to please his audience, and he lashes out when he feels rejected. He's not alone. We all feel that need, and it drives us way more than we know. In an election, two people are desperate to get picked. If they win, they can feel like they are truly wanted. Plus, they now have the power to make people want them more. What will they do to get picked? What does the young girl do to get boys to like her? Try to make herself look sexy? Give up her self-respect? What does a man do to get his buddies to think he's a man? Torture recruits at a Marine boot camp? Try to dominate women? What do business people do to feel wanted? Who are they willing to hurt to make their numbers and be praised? Or make enough money to please their mate. What do you do to yourself to feel wanted? How is the need to feel wanted impacting us and our society? What do we do, oh, I'm sorry, why do we feel so desperate to start with? Why don't we already feel secure? And what can we do about it? So that's what's coming up next week with Beth. (laughs) I can't wait to hear that one. I really can't because I know I've done plenty of things to try to get people to want me before and they don't turn out well so uh thank you todd for that and vicky and brett i i can't thank you enough for being on our show today you were wonderful guests um you're doing fantastic work and you're making a real difference in the world and god bless you i hope that many people are inspired by listening to you today Thank you, Thank you so, so much, much for having this us. This has been wonderful. And please come to Virginia. <laughs> I, I would love to do that. I'm going to call you and talk to you in just a minute. 
Good. Okay. Good. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.